This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This episode of How to Fail is sponsored by Stripe and Stare, purveyors of the most comfortable, sustainable knickers and loungewear in the world because it's what's underneath that counts. Stripe and Stare make products that are kind to you and kind to the planet. And I hope it's not TMI, but I'm wearing a pair of Stripe and Stare knickers right now and I can fully condone this strap line. I wear them all the time since they started sponsoring the podcast and I absolutely agree that they are unbelievably comfortable and there is no VPL. They don't ride up. You don't get wedgies. They're so comfortable, you forget you're even wearing them. So it lets you worry about far more important things throughout the day. And they are sustainably sourced. Only 3% of the underwear market is sustainably sourced, which is pretty terrible for a product that we all wear every day. Stripe and Stair products are sustainably sourced from beechwood trees, which mean they are softer than cotton, use 95% less water in their production, and they lie perfectly flat against the skin. You don't need to just take my word for it. They've been described as the most comfortable knickers by magazines such as Forbes and Harper's Bazaar, and their pyjamas are really amazing as well. Anyway, shop online at stripeandstare.com with a 20% discount for the next month using the code HOWTO20. That's HOWTO20. Stripe and Stare are also available at Selfridges, Shopbop, and Revolve. And they have a knicker subscription, so you can have a new pair of knickers delivered through the letterbox on a regular basis, and you never need to think about shopping for pants again. Thank you so, so much to the wonderful Stripe and Stare. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. My guest today describes herself in her Twitter bio as food writer and pain in your ass. If the latter is true, she is a very welcome pain in my ass because I count myself firmly among Ruby Tando's admirers. She is the former Great British Bake Off contestant who became an acclaimed author and journalist, publishing three books and a myriad of articles, including a fascinating recent piece for The New Yorker about how a cheese can become extinct. Her latest book, Cook As You Are, Recipes for Real Life, Hungry Cooks and Messy Kitchens, is out next month and contains 100 original recipes accessible to real home cooks, no matter their age, budget, ability or background. There's also an easy read version for those with certain learning disabilities. It's the kind of inclusive, helpful attitude that encompasses much of Tando's work. She grew up in Southend-on-Sea in Essex, raised by a father who worked for the Royal Mail and her mother, a school admin worker. Her working class roots have left her with little patience for food elitism and her earlier book, the Sunday Times bestseller, Eat Up, was a manifesto which railed against the wellness craze and cooking snobbery and argued for a more relaxed, 
pleasure-filled attitude to the food we put in our mouths. She has become a champion for many through her public honesty around her own history of disordered eating and her fearlessness in calling out double standards. She once took to Twitter to label Piers Morgan sentient ham. (laughs) And yet, when I first met her for The Observer way back in 2013, Tando admitted, definitely my natural instinct is to question myself and to undervalue my own achievements. I've had a lifetime of self-doubt. Ruby Tando, welcome to How to Fail. Well, that was all very nice. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so relieved. I always wipe the sweat off my brow that I hope I've got all the facts right. (laughs) Yeah, it's very strange hearing your kind of recent life echoed back to you like that, but seems about right. Is it still true that you feel riven by self-doubt? Less so. Less so than before, for sure. I have a, a clearer sense now of which things might just be, you know, almost those mechanical anxieties. You know, you're kind of used to having a worry about something and so you just anticipate it and it kind of unfolds almost in such a predictable way. So I can kind of pinpoint when that's happening a bit more now, when it's not rooted in something that's really happening. It's just a pattern. Yeah, I still have a lot of self-doubt that to my mind is completely justified, but I'd have to pick apart whether that's really true all of the time. How old are you now? I am 29. Oh my gosh, you're still so young. How have your 20s been for you? Because I do think that that's a decade where so often we question ourselves and learn how to tackle our own anxieties. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was kind of a teenager, I remember my mum saying, I would never want to be a teenager again if I could choose one time in my life to go back to, I'd be 28, 29, because that's when you really relax into yourself. You know who you are a bit more and you just are better able to handle things, but you still have kind of I don't know, some kind of crazy hope as well. And I've kind of been waiting for that moment to hit. It's not quite hit just yet, but it might be around the corner. But yeah, so far, my 20s have been just wild, I guess, in a way. Not sex, drugs and rock and roll, but just I came off Bake Off when I was, I think, just 20 or or 21. I'm not 100% sure. And then since then, it's just been food writing and and books and things like that, which is definitely not what I would have anticipated for this decade in my life. Don't worry, it's taken me until 42 to feel sorted. So it's fine. (laughs) You've still got time ahead. Um, Why did you want to write Cook As You Are? Which can I just say, is such a brilliant idea. And like the best ideas, I'm shocked that it hasn't been done before. And it feels like it could only have come from you because you come from this fresh, innovative perspective. But why did you feel that you wanted to write it? I knew that I wanted to write more recipes. I do love writing recipes. I love spending time in the kitchen and I love communicating to people about food. I really enjoy that. But quite often I get sent cookbooks and quite often they are really complex and not particularly accessible. And I think that's fine because I think a lot of people, myself included, are like quite dedicated food cooking hobbyists in a way so we don't mind going that extra mile but it struck me just how few of them were really good for everyday cooking like the kind of stuff that you can roll in from work and actually make or the kind of stuff that doesn't just serve two people but might actually serve a family for instance with a few people living under one roof whether that's loads of flatmates or whether that's kids or grandparents or whoever it is so I wanted to do something that would actually cater to those people So outside of the two portions of a veg only and somehow 25 ingredient meal, do you know what I mean? I wanted something a bit more accessible and affordable. And on top of that, I just saw so many people talking online about how much they struggled with cookbooks being quite difficult to follow. So whether that was the instructions presuming loads of prior knowledge or just the layout and things like that. And so I worked really, really hard to kind of dig down into why do we have the recipe writing conventions that we have and in what ways do they work and in what ways don't they work and how can I write this so that as many people as possible can cook from this book in a way that doesn't send them spiralling into just a meltdown and a, yeah, so that cooking isn't stressful basically. It's so interesting that because... Hearing you talk, I realise that my attitude to cooking has changed, where I feel 
recipe books are too complicated for me even to begin to delve into. And when I look at cookery programs on TV, like MasterChef or indeed Bake Off, it feels like on the amateur side of things, it's got more and more complicated. And you couldn't get through the first round of MasterChef unless you did a sous vide chicken and <laughs> a carpaccio foam and have, you know, know what to do with a jar of preserved lemons. So yeah, I really, really think this book is brilliant. And there's such a gap in the market. And the other thing that I know you've spoken about in the past that a lot of cookbooks do is they focus their core message around slimness. So was that also something you wanted to address? Yeah, it was. I mean, I think cook as you are. I mean, like the title kind of was what started this and everything spun off from that, all the ways that I decided to approach writing the recipes and then how to illustrate the book as well. It all spun off from the title and I mean, I guess at its core, it's about meeting you where you're at and making cooking something that's not aspirational. So it's not for tomorrow when you've got more energy and it's not for next year when you've saved up for a better kitchen or for like five years time when you finally got the body that you want for whatever reason. You know, it's about here and now. What can you cook today that's going to feel good, that's going to nourish you and you might even take some pride in. So that was just the heart of it. And I mean, that philosophy is spilled out to the illustrations as well, which were done by an amazing illustrator called Sinead Park. And we talked about how do we want to bring this book to life? And obviously the usual way is to have glossy food photographs, which I've had in previous cookbooks. And it's really fun doing a food photo shoot like that. But what happens with those shoots is you go into a location kitchen or a studio kitchen and it's really beautiful and it's like nowhere I've ever cooked before. And then you have the food photographed in that setting. And I thought like, this isn't going to work for this because I want people to be able to see themselves, see their kitchens and their lives kind of represented in this book a bit more. And so we settled on illustrations. And so Sinead did these amazing illustrations that showed people of every size and shape, every race, with every kind of kitchen, with every cultural accoutrement you could possibly imagine decorating their lives just to show like the breadth of the people who can cook and who enjoy cooking and who might get something from cooking from this book. It just felt really important for this. I keep being sent celebrity wellness books that have kind of vegan recipes and then hamstring exercises and advice for wild swimming. You have been a welcome and outspoken critic of some of that kind of marketing. Where are you at now with the cult of wellness and aspirational eating? So I've written about this in the past. I fell victim to a little bit of it when I was at university because I became vegan when I was at university. And it was a really easy shortcut to not really being able to eat very much, especially back then. It must have been maybe 2012, and there definitely were places you could get vegan food, but it's not as widespread as now. It just meant that I couldn't eat a great deal, and when people went out to restaurants and stuff, I probably couldn't come with most of the time. So that kind of led me a bit towards wellness stuff and gave me like this sanctimonious feeling of, like, I've had vegetables today which have left my body feeling efficient and taut or whatever, you know? So that was my experience of it, and I had an eating disorder for a number of years. But the more that I read about wellness culture and kind of saw it unfold in real time actually because it really boomed over the course of a few years maybe from 2014 to 2020 the more I was able to see it for what it was and I think it it really really cleverly repackaged diet culture ideas so about kind of the morality of food and bodies which bodies are good and bad and kind of about how important it is to lose weight and to be thin. It repackaged those ideas in a really seductive format because it stopped being about shame. It wasn't like 90s diets where it's like you're going to eat cabbage soup for six weeks because you're disgusting. It it wasn't that anymore. It was you're going to eat kale soup for six weeks because you're fabulous and because you deserve to take care of yourself. So it was a really kind of I'd say insidious way to repackage these diets and it made it really widespread because people felt like they were doing the right thing. They felt like they were achieving a glow, like they were nourishing themselves, like it was self-love. But actually a lot of the ideas were to do with thinness and losing weight and all of that. So just seeing that really, I don't know, it opened my eyes to how dangerous all that stuff is. And since writing about it, I've kind of felt like I've never been more distant from it myself anyway than I am now. 
It was interesting witnessing that kind of language during lockdown as well, because I feel at the beginning of lockdown, when none of us knew what we were getting into, there was this sense that you could have your lockdown glow up and you could spend your time doing at-home workouts and eating really healthily. And now it feels there's a sense of like losing your lockdown pounds and, oh my gosh, I ate too much banana bread. And there's so much self-loathing packaged up in all of those ways of thinking isn't there there is and it's extraordinary isn't it I mean you'd think that we've just seen down the barrel of the gun so to speak you know we have seen our own mortality we have seen how fragile our bodies can be and in spite of all of that it should be kind of an epiphany for us we should be like oh my god I'm gonna transcend this bullshit and I'm gonna just live my life instead of doing that we've been like I'm gonna sink deeper into self-loathing, deeper into micromanaging my body and doubting its capacities and being really fussy about things that don't even matter than ever. And I find that really depressing. I think it's extraordinary what our bodies can do. It's terrifying sometimes the ways in which they can fail us as well. I think that is scary. But the idea that a juice cleanse could be a panacea for all of that is really worrying. Well, I love that your work is such a corrective to all of that, and I thank you for it. And before I get on to your failures, I wonder if I could just ask you a quick question about Bake Off, because Mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier, you're now 29, you were on Bake Off when you were 1920, so you've had a, a decade, I guess, to process what happened. How do you feel about it now? Because I remember that series so vividly. And I remember the amount of criticism you got for not emoting enough, because it felt like that's how we wanted our women to be. We wanted them to be simpering or smiling or crying. And that's how we could box them up. How do you feel it all went down looking back on it now? God, it it was so, so strange. I think I'm still trying to make sense of it. But I think that people's big criticism, from what I can understand, was that my self-doubt was performative. I think that was the idea, that I was kind of being self-pitying and I was being not entirely sincere. And that behind that was maybe it was implied that I was trying to trick the judges or I was trying to like spin things for sympathy. I think maybe that was the rough gist of it. And on top of that, I think some people just found me annoying, which I think is absolutely justifiable. I think the most frustrating thing for me since then is actually, I think the people, some of the criticisms were right, but in a way that makes me feel like, God, you just can't win. Because I think there may be something to me playing up myself down. Now, that doesn't mean that it came from nowhere. A lot of the time, I really wasn't happy with the bakes I produced. But other people might suck it up and be like, you know what, I did my best. And that would be my comment. Whereas I would just say, God, I'm so unhappy with what I made. Oh, what if I've thrown it all down the toilet with this? Honestly, I think that on some level, the reason that I let that doubt shine was because I didn't want people to say, oh, she's stuck up. I didn't want people to say she's full of herself. She's stuck up. She's an ego. She's a bitch, all of these things. And so honestly, I think that, you know, people who say the self-doubt was played up, I think maybe they had something right, but If anything, it was a defense against the other great charge leveled at women, which is they're up themselves. So I I don't really have any regrets about the way I handled myself. I think there was emotional truth to everything that I said and did there. But it's so strange to see the ways in which at such a young age, I was already preemptively trying to shield myself from people's censure and their aggression. And in doing so, I managed to put myself in the line of fire, which was really shot myself in the foot there. It's so strange. And actually, I think the cultural landscape, thankfully, has changed an enormous amount in that relatively small period of time. And I like to think you wouldn't be treated that way now, but I'm so sorry that you were. I feel I can guess the answer to this. Do you still watch Bake Off? (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. No, I can't. I just, you know, I I appreciate it as a show. I think the format is clearly compelling. But no, when I hear the little song, the little jingle at the start, I feel sick. I just can't have anything to do with it, I'm afraid. You've also said some hilarious things about Paul Hollywood. I think I feel like the ultimate Rupee Tando criticism is using some form of ham or pork product (laughs) to describe a man. (laughs) 
Oh God, I can't even remember the insults that I've thrown out at this point, which doesn't reflect well on me that I've thrown out that many, but yeah. Oh, I've just found it. You called Paul Hollywood a walking gammon joint. Oh, so I did. That wasn't even <laughs> the most uncharitable thing I said, I don't think, but yeah. Well, I want to come on to that a bit later because it's sort of part of one of your failures, not the gammon joint, but I loved reading your failures so much. You are an amazing writer and you can tell that even in these relatively short gobbets, but your first failure is that you failed at university, as you say it to me, four times and counting. So tell us about that. Well, I just can't seem to finish. I just cannot seem to get a degree. At this point, it's ridiculous. I kind of have pretty much given up hope. So I was at school, like very much uh, over-attentive, over-achieving, highly strung straight A student. I think you can tell that by the way I am today. And I was just very focused on my studies and I was looking forward to going to university. I was always like big into that. It was never really a doubt in my mind. And actually no one in my immediate family had even been to university before. And I'm the oldest child as well. So I think there was, for me, I don't, there wasn't really pressure from my family. But for me, there was a sense of excitement about going away and doing this thing that I didn't really have a blueprint for. So I applied and I was going to do physics and then... Just as I finished sick form in that summer after sick form where you're kind of set free into the world, I basically just had a, a breakdown at the same time as that a boyfriend at the time broke up with me and I just couldn't imagine going to university. So I'd enrolled and it was day two of term and I was meant to show up and the clock was ticking down and I literally just, I couldn't make myself go. So I didn't go that year. I applied for a different course to a different university the next year. I applied for physics and philosophy at King's and then I dropped out after a year. Then I moved to UCL to do philosophy and history of art and I dropped out after two years. And then finally, I tried to do a creative writing master's at Birkbeck and I did maybe six weeks of that. So I've been all around the disciplines. I have had a little sample from pretty much every undergraduate subject you can imagine but not quite managed to make it stick. That's so interesting on multiple levels because we know that you can finish things and finish them brilliantly. I mean, looking at your bakes that you did on Bake Off, for instance, and we know that you're a straight A student. Is it that you get bored? Yeah, I guess so. I think the boredom is part of it. But you know what? I think I really like being self-directed. I think that's one part of this. The thing is, I love learning about things. I absolutely love it. And I think that's part of what I love about writing so much is that I get to turn my attention to a person or a topic or a cause or whatever it is. And I get to research it in depth. I get to interview people. I get to learn about something that was completely alien to me and really plunge myself into it. And I do that for a month or two and then it's over. And I love it that way. And I wonder sometimes whether university was just too much depth and not enough self-direction I think maybe that's why it couldn't hold my attention but also I kind of flip from thing to thing very flighty so if a project's longer than a few months that tends to be when I'm on the at risk of running do you have long-lasting friendships not particularly no a couple but I'm certainly not one of those people who's managed to you know for example have friends from school that they are still in touch with and still friends with now and stuff like that although I do envy that Mm. I think you're just too intelligent. <laughs> like I think that is you're a very mind. generous interpretation of my <laughs> significant failings. <laughs> I think your mind works much more quickly than most other people's, and that's why you, when you're talking, you sound like you've accumulated the wisdom of a sixty-five-year-old. <laughs> I've accumulated the exhaustion as well. My like emotional brain is just like. Oh, it's worn out. It's worn out from all the chopping and changing and, and jumping from thing to thing. You mentioned at the beginning of explaining this failure that you had a breakdown. And I just didn't want to let that pass without acknowledging that. And that must have been horrible. What what happened exactly? I mean, at that time, I'm just thinking, so it had been the summer holidays and I was just 18 and I was going out with this guy and then that kind of all went haywire as things tend to do when you're that age anyway. We hadn't even been going out for very long. But I think that was the catalyst for unleashing of pretty much the emotions of the last six years or so of being at secondary school in sick form. 
because I was so high achieving and stuff, I think I just, I swallowed a lot of things and I just always applied myself. I never did anything desperately naughty or like went off the rails. And so once school was over and with that little breakup, I think it was just the floodgates opened and all of that pent up anger and stuff just unleashed. I was self-destructive and I got put very briefly, I think they used it more as a kind of scare tactic than as a diagnostic or curative thing I got put very briefly on a mental ward a local one but yeah it was so much pent-up stuff and it just came out then I think I'm so sorry you went through that that is a lot at a very formative age I mean the mental ward must have been a difficult thing to navigate at that age I think more than anything else, it was a sense of shame. Yeah, I think lots of people will experience this. It was a sense of shame that I hadn't been able to like hold things together better. I felt embarrassed and I felt like I'd let people down like that. Where actually I think what I wish I'd been able to feel was just sadness that things had got to that point. I wish I'd been able to feel sad rather than ashamed. And I think that kind of pattern is something that I'm still working on now. Like trying not to jump straight to shame and embarrassment and just sit in whatever the more immediate feeling is. Yeah, I totally understand that. I think my default, just as I go about my daily life, is guilt, just complete guilt about (laughs) everything. Things that I haven't done, things that no one expects me to do that I felt guilty over, and I just can't shake that. And that's sort of where I start from. And it's such a strange thing. And I spoke to my mother about it, and she was like, I don't feel guilt at all. I was like, what? (laughs) I just thought it was the human condition, but there are some people out there who don't feel it. No, no, some people don't. But you know what? Like one thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently, it's come up a couple of times, just seen it written around places, is that the evil step cousin of guilt is resentment. And so either you say no to things and you feel guilty, or you have the option of saying yes to things and becoming a resentful husk, which I think is what I tend to do. So I think you've chosen like the right side of things. If you have to have like a toxic emotion, I think that's the one to go for. Oh, thank you. Now you've made me feel better. <laughs> Resentful husk, what a great phrase. A great title for your memoir later on in oh, life. <laughs> when you mentioned there that you put yourself under pressure at school to get good grades, I read somewhere that you were also desperate to be liked during that phase of your life. So was there a pressure there as well? Yeah, I mean, like what you were saying about guilt, like you just think that this is how everyone feels. It seems to me that surely everyone's desperate to be liked, but Maybe it's not quite so painful for some people. I'm not really sure. Yeah, I was desperate to be liked. And when I felt that people didn't like me, that shifted quite quickly into real hatred of those people. Tell me how your parents feel about your chopping and changing attitude to university. Do they care or are they just proud of you as you the immense success that you are? I've never had any pressure from my parents to kind of do or be anything in particular. I think my mum felt a bit of pressure from her mum growing up about, you know, how she should perform and what she should do and what kind of job she should get and things like that. And I think she's been really, really conscious of not passing that on, maybe to a fault, because I kind of am very much left to forge my own path. I've never really had anyone say, okay, come on, you cannot quit this again. Let's get you to stick with this one thing. I've never had that, which maybe at times would have been useful. I've had their support and I've always felt that they've been proud of what I've done, which is nice. It means that I've not had the kind of shame burden compounded by that from them as well. You chose this as one of your three failures. And I suppose the question I'm going to ask is... Really? Like, do you really feel that this is a failure? I think the failure in it, for me, is the ways in which I dropped out. I think that's where I'm not proud of myself. A lot of the time, when I kind of quit things in general, it's because I've had a feeling, and that feeling is amazingly urgent in that moment, and I cannot imagine ignoring it, and so I just have to quit something or try something new or whatever it is. And that's the way I've dropped out of university a lot of the time as well. So, like, I wish, like, after I had that breakdown when I was 18, I wish I had just deferred my place. I could have just done that. But for some reason, it was like, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like, no, I I won't start late. I'll start never. And that's kind of been the attitude for a lot of things as well. So, 
the failure in not finishing university, I think, is the attitude that I had in doing it. I wish I just made decisions from a more like positive place rather than just like jumping ship. Do you think you're one of those people who I admire but can't fully understand who would categorise themselves as spontaneous and would just like book a paragliding trip in Portugal in a couple of days time? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I always see myself as quite boring and quite a worrier and, and quite anxious. But actually, oh, I think you're right. I think I am quite spontaneous in a way that is sometimes reckless. I hate committing to things. It's actually a miracle that we've made it to this conversation today because I was like, oh, it's coming up. And the longer that I have to anticipate something, the more I dread it. So I think that's why I tend to book things at short notice, arrange to meet people at short notice, because then it's kind of, I'm in the emotion, we're here, I don't have a chance to get cold feet before it happens. So yeah, I guess I am spontaneous for that reason. That makes so much sense. I've never had it explained to me in that way, because it feels like, I have a very strong work ethic, which sometimes tips into unhealthiness where just work fills all available space and helps distract me from sort of uncomfortable emotions. But part of that, the motivating force for that is that I want to make the most of my time on this earth. And there's a sort of fear that if I don't say yes to all the opportunities, then I won't have done that. And maybe it's a similar thing for you that you have a fear of getting trapped in something that won't be making the most of your time. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. Do you know, one of the most (laughs) quite embarrassing, sad little things about me is that I absolutely love the Lord of the Rings films. I've not even finished the books, so I'm not claiming to be a fan. Like lots of people would hate me for saying I just love the films. And I always get so teary when those little hobbits set out from their little home and go to see the big wide world, not even knowing if they're going to come back. It makes me break down every single time. And I think that's the way I feel. I feel hugely restless. And I feel like the world is so, so big and so exciting. And I just want to try so much of it. But I think in my enthusiasm, I think sometimes I get a bit of stage fright. I'm like, well, what do I choose when there are so many options? And that's when I end up doing nothing. Oh, you're just a little hobbit. (laughs) (laughs) How... Do you manage your mental health now? I've got lots of skills that I have learned over the years, sometimes from the internet, sometimes from friends, sometimes from professionals that definitely help. I mean, that kind of impulsivity that I was saying about and that kind of feeling that emotion is so urgent that I can't possibly ignore it. I'm definitely working on not honouring that all the time these days because that's how you end up just quitting things on a whim. So, I mean, for me, I'm learning to kind of sit with feelings a bit more, let them brew, let them simmer, see what happens, and then act on them in a few days if I have to, but not just be kind of just terrifying tornado of raw emotion all the time. Great advice. Also another good title for a memoir, Terrifying Tornado of Emotion. (laughs) Your second failure really did make me laugh. It's that you regularly fail at cooking for people, which people wouldn't necessarily expect. So tell us what you mean and why you chose it. Yeah, do you know what? You know those embarrassments, like when you've embarrassed yourself in conversation or whatever it is, that are so deep, you're walking around Asda and you remember it like a shot in your spine, like you're just like bolt upright all of a sudden. You're like, what? It strikes you and you're sweating instantly just at the memory of this thing that maybe you said at a party six years ago or something. That's how I feel about all the times that I have cooked for people and absolutely mortified myself. I remember it all the time. I'll be minding my own business in an H&M somewhere and I'll suddenly start sweating thinking about the time I cooked for like a reviewer or something and it just balls it up completely. So yeah, basically I am terrible at cooking for people. I cannot do it. Like, I'm very capable of cooking. I've written cookbooks. I love cooking. I read about it all the time. I know I can cook. I cook for myself and for, like, very close friends with no problem all the time. But when it comes to it, when I actually have to demonstrate that aptitude, I cannot. I mean, one that I always remember is that I had 
someone interviewing me from a really big newspaper and I was, you know, I was nervous about it. It was maybe the kind of biggest coverage I had got so far and it was for a book that I'd written that I was really proud of. So I really wanted to make a good impression. And she came all the way to Sheffield where I was living at the time and I thought, I'm going to cook her something really special. And so I bought a whole tilapia from Sheffield's Moor Market. What, and a and tilapia is... <laughs> It's, it's, it's a fish it's, it's just a okay. kind of fish and it's delicious and I have never cooked whole tilapia before what was I thinking like I didn't know what I was doing it's a rented flat with an oven that was really temperamental it just all spiraled it went so incredibly wrong I, I cannot express to you the depths of my embarrassment because I served her like this whole fish that I hadn't prepared properly I think it still had some scales on the outside or something. It was raw. A great deal of it was raw. There was onions in some other component of the dish that weren't cooked. It was actually shocking. Like my face is feeling red just thinking about it. She wrote up like, you know, a very gentle profile after this. But I was thinking like, why didn't you write that I can't cook? If I had interviewed someone and they claimed to be a cook and they'd cooked me that I would have not even finished the profile would have been like I can't participate in this in this <laughs> lie but yeah it's so embarrassing and that has happened so many times tell us about Diana Henry oh I'm sorry to make you relive it uh, it was a podcast thing it was an episode of a podcast that she was recording and she came to my house a different house in Sheffield this time because I've moved house as many times as I've quit university. And I cooked, again, something that I've never done before, because I'm ridiculous. Like, there's something called groundnut soup, which I make all the time. It's a West African thing, a Ghanaian thing for me. And it's a kind of like a peanut butter soup with scotch bonnets and ginger and garlic and stuff. It's delicious. But I decided that instead of just doing it the way I always do, which is just as a vegetarian soup, I'd do it as a stew, which is a legitimate way of doing it with beef in it. And the beef was just tough as biltong. And she is a cookbook writer herself. She's done so many cookbooks. She writes recipes for newspapers and things like that. She's really acclaimed. She's a much better cook than I am. And I was just so, so deeply embarrassed that, again, I had bitten off more than I could chew and then made her bite off more than she could chew with that bloody beef. It was so <laughs> embarrassing. And so is this a function of the pressure that you put yourself under to get it perfect? I think so, yeah. I think what I've identified in this over the years is like the compensatory drive that kicks in when I'm feeling a bit nervous I think when I'm cooking, if something's not going 100% to plan, if I feel like it's not quite impressive enough, if it's too watery, salty, hot, whatever's going on, rather than just see how it goes and deal with it in the way that I ordinarily would when I'm cooking, by tasting and using my intuition and checking a recipe or whatever, I just swerve. I think this is why I have not yet learned to drive and don't trust myself to, because if something goes wrong, I might just like swerve into another lane. I just go, I compensate way too hard. Mm. And I think that's where it goes wrong with the cooking. I think I bypass all cognition and I go straight to panic. Okay. I feel like what you need to do is just cook loads of stuff in advance, freeze it, and then just bring it out when someone you don't know comes around. I feel like that would be a good coping tactic. <laughs> I think it would. I think there are so many things I could do along those lines to make my life easier and I need to start employing them. I've embarrassed myself so many times that I actually won't cook for people, especially not people that I don't know particularly well. I just can't do it. I say no to any opportunity to do that, but I'd love to cook for people. I want to do it more, so I need to figure out what's reasonable for me to expect of myself and how can I stop myself panicking and getting it all completely wrong when it comes to it. I also feel, and sorry to make this sort of cod psychological, but... Is it a fear that you, just as you, that cooking as you are, Ruby, is not enough? Because it feels like you're trying to do things that you've never done before, or like add beef to the groundnut soup, and actually you could have just been yourself. It is 100% that, yes. I should be paying you £60 an hour. Yes, it's that. <laughs> you can cook me a meal and I will put you to the desk just to oh, be dear. yourself in that context. Is it unsettling? Because you're known for being a cook, 
to feel that you're not good at it in those scenarios. It is. Yeah, it really is. Because it puts you in such a weird place when you know you're good at something, you know you love it, but you can't show that to other people, not even a lot of your friends. It makes you wonder, like, whether you're making it all up. Am I just delusional? Am I actually the world's worst cook? And kind of, it makes you harbour, well, it certainly makes me harbour this kind of paranoid belief that everyone thinks I'm just a terrible cook, that I'm shit at what I do, that I have no ability whatsoever, because that's how I'm walking around feeling all the time. And I've never had the opportunity to prove them otherwise. Wow. It's it's like an extreme self-imposed imposter syndrome. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. You know, you were right when you said it, that I'm not cooking in a way that's authentic to me, because if I just made the dishes that I write up as recipes, the dishes that I cook for myself, it would all be fine. But it's because, you know, someone knocks on the door and I'm like, oh, Christ, like it suddenly occurs to me that I've never made volivants and I have to suddenly do that for someone to impress them. So it's punching above my weight in service of ideals that nobody asked me to meet except for myself. Well, I'm in the very fortunate position of having tasted a Ruby Tando bake, a cream bun. But the brilliant thing about it was when I went to interview for The Observer in 2013, you'd already made them. So you didn't make them specifically for me. And as a result, it was totally delicious. And you were very kind to give me one because I was basically ogling them throughout the interview. (laughs) Did I definitely not make them for you? Or was that just a fib I told so as not to seem keen? Because I can't remember and it, it, it may be, yeah. If it was a fib, I'm very charmed by that. <laughs> but I felt like you'd made them anyway, just because that's what Ruby Tando does. She just bakes on, on the drop of a hat. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that you've got siblings. How many siblings do you have? I have three siblings. So I have a sister and two brothers. They're all younger than me. Did they put the same pressure on themselves as you do? Or do you think maybe it's a function of also being the oldest? I think we're all very different. I think my sister, I always marvel at because she is, so she's six years younger than me and she's so together. And that's not to say that she never finds anything difficult or anything like that, but she's so good at holding herself together and setting realistic expectations for herself and finding things that she enjoys and people she enjoys spending time with and just making a life out of these components, which is something I've tried so hard to do and can't seem to get right. So I really admire her for that. I don't think she kind of is quite as up in her own head as I am. Mm. As for my brothers, I think they're quite hard on themselves But we're very, very different. So it presents differently. So I think maybe they're more inclined to kind of retreat from the world, whereas I'm more inclined to bludgeon my way into spaces and then doubt myself once I'm in there. (laughs) Oh, Ruby, you're so delightful. Um, (laughs) When you came off Bake Off, did people try and pigeonhole you? Did you get sort of pitched cookery programs that would box you in a certain way? I mean, I think the one thing that's challenging is that I knew after Bake Off that I never wanted to do cookery TV, have a cookery show, anything like that. I'm absolutely fine with never doing that again in my life. Because I think people with that, and sometimes with cookbooks as well, especially if you're doing them with big publishers and things like that, there's just an expectation that you're going to show the completely positive, charming, smiley exuberant side of cooking and what it is to be a cook I think especially if you're a woman and it's just not who I am like I simply cannot fake it I'm very tempestuous I'm not always in a good mood when I cook I like to be a realist about these things I guess that's what at the heart of cook as you are I'm very much a realist with it and that isn't particularly marketable for people who want to make shows and books and stuff like that so that was a challenge for me. Do you think only certain kinds of people are allowed to present primetime cookery programmes? I think there's a real range. I mean, I don't want to be a dick and be like, they're all fake and I'm real because that's absolutely yeah, not true. That's not what you know, that would yeah. be, yeah, that's my kind of old bullshit. But do you know what? I think it's just not me. Like, I've never been someone that's good at kind of 
turning it on, at being charming, at performing, at kind of holding the attention of a room. That's not the person that I am. I hold myself really awkwardly. I'm terrible on camera and things like that. So I think you just need to be a different type of person. I think it's as simple as that. And I think there's a huge variety of people that get into those kind of gigs. And, and I'm happy that they do. And I'm also happy that it's not me. Okay. Your third failure, I think, is one of my favorite failures of all time. <laughs> the way that you've expressed it is so funny. I'm not going to read it aloud because I want you to tell the stories yourself. But it is, in brief, your failure to rise above things. And at school, you wrote to me, you used to be a certain way. <laughs> How would you describe yourself? Oh, vengeful, <laughs> spiteful, scheming, malevolent, just nasty. Just anything you can imagine along those lines. That was me at school. It sounds like I'm kind of playing it up. I really was all of those things. And on occasion to this day, I still am those things. It's so funny because people so often come on this podcast and I hear them saying like things that not this verbatim, but things of this essence, like my problem is that I'm too nice. My problem is that I didn't say no to people enough. And I'm just like, what? Well, I can't relate. My problem is that I'm not nice enough, have not been nice enough. And I'm just a bit of a dick sometimes. So, yeah. <laughs> I read somewhere you were asked, who's your favorite literary hero or heroine? And you picked Aunt Sponge and Aunt Spiker and James and the Giant Peach. And you said that you saw something of yourself in them. And I wondered if that was related to this failure, because they are kind of awful characters who are cruel in a hilarious way. God, I, I hadn't remembered that. <laughs> but yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, they're actually quite ghastly. So I don't know why I felt like I should say that. I guess I was just trying to communicate that I'm not a Miss Honey character. Let's put it that way. Do you know what one of the characters I most relate to now, actually, now that I come to think of it, there's a children's book by E.L. Konigsberg, and there's a character in it who's this little girl, and she's just so capricious, and she's also lovely, but she gets into her head and then she lashes out at people in these little ways. There's this line in the book that goes, the weather in March is a lot like me, nice for one day, then nasty for two. And I relate to it so deeply. Tell us about some of your schemes. Oh, dear. I think what a lot of these boil down to is a lack of, I think, a real sensitivity and oversensitivity to what people think, and then dangerous coupled with a lack of impulse control. When I was at infant school, so I can't have been older than seven, I heard a story about how some boy at my younger brother's nursery had bitten him, something it maybe got kind of lost in translation a little bit, but something like that had happened. And despite the fact that I have never been particularly protective of my brother, that's a failing of mine as a sibling, I've never been that protective, I really took it on myself to worry about this, to scheme and plot about what I would do to this other little boy if ever I saw him. And I was so consumed with my revenge plots that one time when my brother's nursery, I think occasionally they'd use the playground of the school where I was at, they'd kind of take it while we were in lessons. And I somehow snuck out of class and went and stood in the PE cupboard which looked out onto the playground and stood in there crying with my forehead pressed up against the glass trying to pick out which little boy it was that had bitten him and just thinking about how hard I would bite him and I had to be kind of retrieved from the cupboard by like a, a teaching assistant or something but that has been kind of the spirit I've taken into more of my adult life than I'm happy to admit. I'm going to come back to that but also tell me about the school meetup when you were 10. Oh, gosh. Yes. So after infant school, I was homeschooled for a few years. So me and my younger brother, the one that was bitten, and my sister was very young at that point. But we were, yeah, homeschooled. My mum gave us some books and sat down with us each day and guided us through all of that but part of that was that we had to meet other children so that my behavior and our behaviors just more generally didn't disintegrate into a feral so we'd go to these homeschool meetups with other people in kind of the Essex area who were also homeschooling so we could kind of socialize and meet other kids and at one of these I met a girl who was maybe a year or two older than me which at that age feels like a lot and she had some friends there 
I got something wrong. I think I said something like they were being a bit mean. And I think I said something like instead of sidekicks, I'd obviously heard it wrong. And I said, you and your sidekicks are stupid. And they just obviously mercilessly laughed at that. And so I grabbed her by the throat and I tried to strangle her and obviously had to be pulled off. And obviously my mum was mortified by this. I don't know if we ever went to another meetup. I embarrassed everyone deeply. But I remember being sat down actually by that girl's older sister later in the day. And I thought that she was an angel because she was maybe 15, which felt so grown up and so glamorous. And she said, oh, my sister can be really mean sometimes, but you just have to take a breath and rise above it. And that was such excellent advice that I didn't follow at all for years afterwards but I've always remembered it oh my gosh I can't tell you how grateful I am that you chose this as a failure no one has ever spoken about it before and I I relate so hard because I think you're right it comes from an intense sensitivity to what other people are thinking of you and how they sometimes might get their perceptions wrong and when I was a child I remember being completely unmoored by the idea that someone was laughing at me or thought I was foolish or had misinterpreted something meaningful about me. And unlike you, who was sort of brave enough to go there with the strangling and the and the biting fantasies, I would just nurture a grudge for years. I, I still hold grudges from school and I have obviously long ago forgiven that person, but I will never, ever forget. Like it just lodges deep in my psyche. And I find it so fascinating that it can come from actually a very sweet thing, which is like a, a need to be accepted and liked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is the heart of it. And I mean, I've thought a lot about this because obviously I don't want to be that sensitive to what people mm. think of me I don't want to be completely derailed by the idea that someone's got something wrong about me I really don't want to be like that so it is something that I've obviously been working on and I mean I don't strangle people these days to start with this is a dreadful thing to say I'm gonna say it anyway but I've always wanted to have a fist fight I don't care who with, <laughs> I just, you know, it's not actually going to happen. It seems highly unlikely at this point, but you know, on some level, I'd love to just, you know, someone that really deserves it. Maybe you're out and you see a man just being like horrible, horrible to someone. And I'd finally get my chance to plant one on someone. <laughs> you want to be a superhero. Well, yeah, less noble than that maybe, but it's so much stress and it's so much holding things in and very meek and mild in a lot of ways. And so that means all of these little moments of aggression and frustration kind of don't really have an outlet. I think that I probably wouldn't fantasize about one day being able to have a punch up if I just, e.g. said to someone in the supermarket, you just cut me up, I was actually queuing. Like yes. if I could just say that, you know. Yes, it's subsumed anger, isn't it? And anger is one of those things that women particularly historically have not been allowed or encouraged to express so it comes out in lots of really difficult, explosive ways. Like I have terrible road rage and I feel like that's where my stuff comes out, all of my frustration. And we'll mm. suddenly just be, I'll launch into an expletive laden rant at <laughs> some poor person who's just driving in their car without any knowledge. But what are you like in an argument? Do you get into arguments in real life? Because I never do. I'm very conflict averse. But one of the things that I respect about you is that you do call things out. And that must be quite a hard thing to balance if you also have all of this other stuff going on. Yeah, I do get into arguments, but it's weird. I think I'm quite fragmented as a person. And I think that's probably why I feel quite unmoored a lot of the time. I'm quite uncertain about what I should be doing and who I really am. Because, you know, online, for instance, I'm very happy to say, like, that, I don't know, some person has said something ridiculous about food and something insensitive about bodies or whatever it is. I'm happy to call that out. I'm happy to called Piers Morgan and Gammon or whatever it is. I'm not scared to do that. It doesn't give my day a free son of stress and anxiety and sadness. It's just something I do I'm like, and I feel reasonably justified in doing it and then I move on. Whereas in my personal life, I think I'm a lot more cautious 
and I think I'm a lot more prone to holding things in and questioning myself and wondering whether I've got things wrong like should I really be annoyed about this and I think actually for good reason a lot of the time because I do have a history of being annoyed about things that I shouldn't be so I do question things a lot more in that area of my life. And do you think, I mean, I suppose Piers Morgan is a bad example for me to choose because I'm not sure that he cares about insults. It doesn't seem to go in. But do you ever think about the impact that that might have on the person hearing it, that they might be hurt by it in the way that you would be hurt by it? I think that is such a recurring theme for me and something that I've only recently started to compute is that so much of the time when I'm unkind to people, is because I genuinely don't think that they will care. I think yeah. that they have so much going on in their lives. They've got so much going for them. They're so popular. They're so whatever it is that they will not care one jot what I think of them. It won't hurt their feelings at all. I really believed that in the moment. And I think I felt that way all the way from school when there was one girl at school who had lots of friends who called me goat girl on my space in a bulletin one time and I couldn't let it go mm. I could not forget it and I dedicated months and years to kind of following her social media and her friends and kind of hating them all and saying really quite horrible things about all of them because I didn't think they care because I thought well they're a friend group they've got something that I wish I had and so what would they care if I'm saying this stuff about them and I think that has carried on a lot. And I think in the last few years, I've learned to be way more careful and to realise that just because people are successful, just because they have things that I don't, it doesn't mean that there is nothing I can do to hurt them. Because I ultimately, I don't want to hurt people. That's the thing. That's so beautifully expressed. Are there things then that you regret having said, or do you feel actually I meant them in the moment and so I can stand by that? I don't have massive regrets, no. In terms of things that I've said on Twitter and stuff, I've been flippant, but <laughs> like there are things that I've said about Paul Hollywood, for example. I think you mentioned one earlier. But I don't particularly lose sleep over that. I don't mm. feel too bad. I don't think that he's particularly hurt by that. I don't think he's very vulnerable to the judgment of others. So yeah, that I don't feel too bad about. I mean, there's definitely things that I've phrased more harshly than I wish I had with hindsight. The only thing that I try to do now is just to think a little bit more and to go in less intensely than I kind of want to on a gut level and to try and keep things to the point as well. Like if someone said something that's absolute nonsense these days, I try to say it was nonsense rather than saying that they are a ham product of whatever variety. Yes. <laughs> well, it's like, as you said, you've taken that girl's older sister's advice to heart and you think about it and act on it now so well done her well done 15 year old her yeah yeah very grateful for her but she was lovely I'm very grateful for you I really am I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this interview and how much I've enjoyed your failures and I hope that doesn't sound weird but how has it been for you because you said at the very beginning before we started recording that you were a bit nervous about it. So what's the experience been like for you? It's actually been quite lovely. It has. I mean, obviously, it's really intimidating. I had to think long and hard before I even committed to doing this with you because I was so nervous about airing my dirty laundry for the world, so to speak. But I think there's something really, really special about knowing what you've done wrong, knowing where you've gone wrong, and knowing that you don't want to do that again. And I think that is the thing that kind of strips the shame from it. The sharing strips away the shame. And then knowing that you're going to kind of do things differently in future strips away that kind of corrosive self-hatred and self-doubt. So if anything, it's been a really useful process. So thank you. Thank you so much for having the courage, the self-insight and the humour to bring everything you have done to How to Fail. You are my groundnut soup forever, Ruby Tando. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. This episode of How to Fail is sponsored by Stripe and Stare, purveyors of the most comfortable, sustainable knickers and loungewear in the world because it's what's underneath that counts. Stripe and Stare 
make products that are kind to you and kind to the planet. And I hope it's not TMI, but I'm wearing a pair of Stripe and Stair knickers right now, and I can fully condone this strap line. I wear them all the time since they started sponsoring the podcast, and I absolutely agree that they are unbelievably comfortable and there is no VPL. They don't ride up. You don't get wedgies. They're so comfortable, you forget you're even wearing them. So it lets you worry about far more important things throughout the day. And they are sustainably sourced. Only 3% of the underwear market is sustainably sourced, which is pretty terrible for a product that we all wear every day. Stripe and Stair products are sustainably sourced from beechwood trees, which mean they are softer than cotton, use 95% less water in their production, and they lie perfectly flat against the skin. You don't need to just take my word for it. They've been described as the most comfortable knickers by magazines such as Forbes and Harper's Bazaar, and their pyjamas are really amazing as well. Anyway, shop online at stripeandstair.com with a 20% discount for the next month using the code HOWTO20. That's HOWTO20. Stripe and Stair are also available at Selfridges, Shopbop and Revolve. And they have a knicker subscription, so you can have a new pair of knickers delivered through the letterbox on a regular basis and you never need to think about shopping for pants again. Thank you so, so much to the wonderful Stripe and Stair. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.